Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, known to both his friends and his enemies as the Napoleon of crime. Welcome, hey, Frank. Ellie. Hey, Frank. Good to be with you again. Um, we apologize for kind of taking a little bit of a half a week off, but uh, as we described, the uh, Jewish holidays are making our schedules a little difficult. Um, we'd like to thank everybody for their comments, positive and negative. Urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We really need to get those subscription rates up. So, uh, if everyone could do a take a take a taking ship um, assignment and get one person that you know to subscribe, that would be very helpful to us. Um, please follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in Padia. Which uh, of all people, we want to thank David Brooks, aka Dave Bro, for highlighting in this morning's column. Yes, it was a good bit of work on his part. The only bit of work on good bit of work on his part for uh, from that from that column. And yes, please do uh, if not, please do get our subscriber number up if uh, if need be. Just to steal your friends' phones and subscribe them to our podcast. They'll thank you for it. Yeah, my wife People got love it when, my, you, when you breach their security and install things on their phones. Yeah, my wife got a phone from work, so I subscribed on her on that phone too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, we're we're just here to juke the stats, guys. Like this is don't you and don't you worry about what our end game is, because what's good for this podcast is good for Casper mattresses. Indeed, that's all we need to say on that subject. Yeah, we all know that you want new mattresses. Don't you also want a discount? Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you? Who doesn't want a discount mattress? There's one way. There's only one way for. There's only one way to get that, and that is to subscribe to this podcast. So do yeah. someone a favor, buy them a discount mattress, and subscribe them. Subscribe them to this podcast. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. This has been. <laughs> this, has been yeah, this, this has been. This has been the Casper Mattress Podcast. Okay. Let's. But speaking of people promoting their own interests and promoting themselves, uh, it's been a while since we've had an update from Venal Pack, the pack that celebrates corruption in all of its forms. Sometimes the literal form of corruption, and sometimes the kind of we we simply celebrate uh, immoral or amoral, unethical or um, differently ethical. Let's call it uh, self promotion in uh, in American leadership and politics. Uh, and we are welcoming back, I think, a familiar face uh, from uh, previous Venal Pack updates on the war on the war on corruption. Uh, our frontline hero this week is uh, the inimitable Paul Ryan. Yes, the Speaker of the House, um, who I think we can all say does not seem to be a funny person. Um, This is, after all, the guy who said that he used to dream about destroying Medicare or Medicaid, maybe both, while sitting around drinking at the kegger at college. Yeah, I think it was um, Medicaid. But yeah, this is the, yeah, this is the dude who's like, mm, this, you know, well, he's pouring himself a natty light is thinking, God, I'm really looking forward to impoverishing the sick. Yeah, either Natty Light or, or Milwaukee Beast, one or the other. Yeah. yeah, he looks. He seems like he might have been a Beast guy. Yeah, or mm-hmm. like a scorer or something. It's grim. Yeah. Anyway, our erstwhile hero, um, third in line to the presidency, uh, spoke last night at the Al Smith dinner. The Al Smith dinner is um, a tradition in New York City. It celebrates the first uh, Catholic uh, to run for president. Uh, it's a big fundraising event for the Roman Catholic Church here in New York. Um, I'm sure the you know money gets distributed elsewhere as well, but uh, the cardinal is there. You know the hierarchy of the church is there. Big donors are there. 
usually this only gets highlighted every four years because uh, in the final weeks in the lead up to the election, uh, the uh, um, party nominees come and sort of, you know, roast each other and roast everyone there. Um, it's mildly entertaining. Everybody's in white tie. It's done with good spirit. Um, this past year, uh, Donald Trump was kind of called out for being uh, not really getting the spirit of the event. Um, everyone should be shocked by the idea that Donald Trump didn't understand the purpose was not to malign his opponent and, you know, build his own greatness. I am agog that this man somehow contrived to screw up a charity event. Yeah, you wouldn't this think. Inc this incidentally is just part of a long instruction. I mean, there, there, is, there is an entire book to be written about the various ways in which Donald Trump has managed to fuck up other people's charity events. Uh, my personal favorite sidebar is uh, the time that he appeared, I think it was a cancer charity, uh, appeared without having given a gift, insisted on being, took someone else's seat on the dais, uh, and then left and never gave a, and never gave a, uh, a, a donation of any kind. Nice. Yeah. It was, a, yeah. it was a truly elite performance. Anyway, to return to the Al Smith dinner, getting back to Paul Ryan. Um, we just wanted to, we're going to post, uh, there was a clip floating around Twitter of about two minutes. Um, so Paul Ryan, not being a particularly funny person. Um, he had some great jokes. He had some killer lines in this thing. Um, and we'll post a clip of a couple of them. Uh, primarily just so you can see that it's very clear that it seems the Speaker of the House was handed this speech two seconds before he went up because he's having a difficult time reading through it. And you kind of see a look of puzzlement on his face of, can I really get away with saying this? Yes, Mr. Speaker, you can and you should, and you should do it also from the House floor in a not joking manner. And that is why you are our venal pack spotlight of the week, because you will say things like, about Trump's remarks to, at the dinner last year. Quote, some said it was unbecoming of a public figure and they said that his comments were offensive. Well, thank God he's learned his lesson. Or every morning I wake up in my office and I scroll through Twitter to see which tweets I'll have to pretend I didn't see later on. Or a personal favorite of Frank and mine, enough with the applause, you sound like the cabinet when Donald Trump walks into the room. Yeah, some of these jokes are pretty. I mean, uh, you know, they're you know, read out as they are, they don't necessarily land. Uh, and read by Paul Ryan, they don't necessarily land. That, that guy really can't tell a joke. But structurally, and nothing is funnier than talking about the structure of jokes. I know. So please contain your uproarious laughter. Uh, but structurally, these are pretty good lines. Actually, maybe we need uh, to wait for like you know the laugh track to subside before we continue talking. That's exactly right. Every, everyone is <laughs> exactly right. Everyone just you know just just calm down, take a few deep breaths. There you go. Uh, you know, really, you know, really stretch out your abdomen there. You're going to be fine. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, structurally, <laughs> a lot of the jokes they told were pretty funny. I mean, there's no, and, and in the hands of someone who wasn't Paul Ryan, they actually might've done pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so whoever wrote that, whoever wrote those remarks, very good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to, El, to Ellie's point, like there is something actually really grotesque about, uh, about go about, you know, headlining or speaking at a, uh, at a big fundraiser, uh, you know, burnishing your own credentials as a, uh, you know, as a, as a public figure and, you know, potentially uh, doing a little fundraising cross-pollination of your own for later, uh, while uh, making light of uh, some stuff that's actually incredibly super serious and really dangerous. Uh, the president's megalomania, his, uh, you know, his, the, uh, the Russia investigations, various other things that honestly, like, as you can tell, the ethos of this podcast is 
Uh, there are very few things that you should not joke about. All of this stuff is funny, or and most of the time you have a choice but either to laugh or cry. So we generally try to choose choose to laugh or at least do both at the same time. Um, but for uh, but for but for you know scoring uh, attempting to score comic points and definitely trying to score political points, uh, making fun of some of stuff that's actually really serious and that falls within his professional purview, and it would do a world of good if he actually called out seriously. Uh, Paul Ryan is definitely. Uh, one of our new one of our heroes of the war on the war on corruption. Yeah. So being enabler number one, uh, Paul Ryan gets the venal pack trophy for the week. You can collect it anytime. Yeah. You can come to speak. I'd be more than happy to have the speaker join us on the show. Oh my God. Yes. Paul Ryan go on taking ship. <laughs> I think that would be epic. Timeline America is complete. I think that would be just fantastic. Yeah. Speaking of good Republicans. Yes. Let's speak of good Republicans. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham, there we go. There's a, <laughs> there's a Republican you can set your watch by. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's, there's been, I think, a slight outbreak of, maybe this has been going on the whole time, but I feel like, you know, in, in, in the horror of the of recent weeks, uh, and I think there's a sort of general sense that the last couple of weeks have lasted seven or eight months, uh, I, you know, if not longer. Uh, I feel like I have, I have, you know, gained it. I've aged the decade in the last year. But in the horror of the last uh, couple of weeks, there have been, you know, some condemnations from Republicans of various stripes and Republicans pushing back against Trump or saying they're pushing back against Trump. There has been an outbreak of the the sort of low level continual effort to anoint uh, to anoint the good republican uh, who is the you know the principled and you know principled figure that is willing to fight back against his own party to undo Donald Trump uh, and everything that party has become and we you know we've seen this a little bit with McCain. We'll talk about that in a second. We've seen some of this. I mean, so Jeff Flake is benefiting is getting a, is getting some process stories about his opposition to Trump. We're seeing, you know, we're, we're seeing this with George W. Bush. We'll talk about that as well. Um, and this is just this, so. This is our public service announcement. Uh, there is an outbreak of attempting to find the good Republican. Uh, please inoculate yourself. Uh, if you need wear a face mask, if you need to when you're going out in public. Uh, you know, you might want to have some tape and some uh, plastic for your windows nearby so you can seal them in the event that this cloud of seeking the good Republican should blow through your neighborhood. Uh, you know, you want to limit your exposure whenever possible. Uh, at this point, there is no, uh, there isn't a, the good Republican. This is not to say that there aren't good Republicans out there somewhere, but the good Republican, the major public, the major Republican figure who is going to bravely take a stand against Trump doesn't exist. If you are in the leadership of the Republican Party right now, you are you either created the conditions for Trump, or you benefited from you benefit from them directly, or you are actively promoting him. Uh, those are the three categories of Republican leader right now. Uh, so, for all of you, the PSA: please be aware of this outbreak of searching for the good Republican and inoculate yourself. Uh, be smart out there, guys. Yeah, and you know, to be clear, as Frank said, there are Republicans out there who are good people, who have done good things, good public servants. Uh, but right now, every single one of them, including John McCain, um, is enabling Donald Trump and the insanity that he's putting the country through. The statistic that I saw recently, six of the seven GOP senators running for re-election have voted with Trump more than 90% of the time. And the one who hasn't voted more than 90% of the time, I'm assuming, is probably in the high 80s. 
this is a group of people who have dedicated their public lives because the Republican Party lacks imagination and the ability to do anything other than tax cut cut taxes and cut regulations. They've dedicated their entire lives to that. Now they believe they they have the opportunity to do it. Therefore, they are enabling every aspect and everything that Donald Trump does and says because they believe that they will be able to cut taxes and cut regulation. And interesting, Matt Latimer, who was um, one of George W. Bush's speechwriters and a a regular contributor to Politico magazine, um, he writes interesting things. He has some interesting uh, perspectives on things. He wrote a very interesting sort of uh, I don't know if it's counterfactual is the right word, but he had an interesting perspective on uh, an uh, article this week saying that uh, if Donald Trump is able to get the tax cuts and tax reforms through, it could potentially be his doom because tax cuts and tax reform are one of the few things that are, A, holding this Republican Party, um, which is, you know, in, in some ways going through some sort of civil war, um, holding that party together for starters, and B, the only reason that a lot of these Republicans are putting up with Donald Trump. Um, I mean, we need to look no further than just the absolute sheer um, hypocrisy of the evangelical voters who supported Donald Trump. And you can see that they're like, you know, hypocrisy in politicians is nothing new. Um, But when it's hypocrisy about a policy issue, that's one thing. If it's hypocrisy about a political issue, that's a slightly different thing. If it's a hypo- but if it's hypocrisy about the person themselves down to their core, that you really got a question. And Donald Trump, who I think we can all agree is not a really good person, um, has certainly not treated his wives well, has certainly not treated employees well, has certainly not treated, is certainly not a church-going, God-fearing man. Um, for evangelical voters to jump on the bandwagon because they believe that with control of both houses of Congress, the court and the presidency, they will be able to make uh, abortion illegal, roll back um, um, uh, equality for for uh, LGBTQ people, um, and they jump they jumped on the bandwagon. And that's um, it's interesting that you brought that up because that that phenomenon is one of the most interesting that occurred in the last election. So there's a there's some really interesting data on uh, the voting intentions and the voting habits of evangelical voters. And, and it's a good example of there's, there's a way the sort of consensus. If you went around asking politicos, how people make it, how voters make decisions, you would hear a very common refrain, which is voters think about how to, uh, you know, they think about how they're going to vote, they vote, and then they feel a certain way about how they voted. And so the think, act, feel, and in point of fact, this is actually, uh, in, this is sort of in reverse. Uh, this, is, this is the reverse of how it's done. Voters actually feel a certain way about candidates. This is, this is sort of my theory. I'm not the only one who holds it. Uh, so when I say it's mine, it's, the one that I, it's one that I subscribe to. It's a reductive way of looking at it, but, of describing it, but I think it pretty well holds up. And, I'll, and, this, and the evangelical voter behavior in 2016 supports it. And I'll tell you why directly. Uh, voters feel a certain way about a candidate. Uh, they act in a certain way. They vote for that candidate, and then they uh, and then they decide afterward, or they you know they make the decision about how they're going to vote, and then they think about how to justify it with their own with you know to themselves essentially. So, and they, and evangelical voters is a great are a really great example of this. In twenty, I think it was twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, there was a poll of evangelical voters that asked them, uh, "Could you vote for someone? Is it possible for someone who has been?" Uh, you know, immoral in their public life, in their private life, 
to um, to morally hold office or ethically hold office in in public in, in public life. And evangelicals, this actually was a question that was asked across the board to voters. Uh, evangelical voters were the strongest, uh, were the strongest no. Uh, their view was a politician who has been unethical or immoral in private life uh, is, una- is essentially unable to be, or you can't, can't be trusted to be ethical or moral in, in public life. So if you've, if you, you know, if you've been bad in private, you're going to be bad in public. Uh, they were un- unquestionably, they held that position the most strongly of any segment of the voting bloc by something like 70 points. I mean, the idea was you've got to be a good person in order to be elected. Come late October of 2016, the same question was asked across the board, and evangelicals were pretty evenly split and actually fairly positive, or, but actually a little bit positive about the ability of someone who has behaved badly in private life to be an ethical and moral public servant. Uh, and, and then a few days later, uh, the, evangel- the white evangelical community in America went out and voted strongly for Donald Trump. This is a great illustration of this effect. There wasn't some kind of religious you know, synod. There wasn't a conference that was called in the two or three years between these two polls in which you know, there was a great theological debate and a moral debate and an ethical discussion. They finally decided, and, they, and some, some edict was written that says, actually, you can be bad in, in private and good in public. That's not what happened here. What happened here was this particular segment of the voting population decided we're going to vote for Donald Trump. And, and therefore it is a, because he's a Republican, because he's saying other things that we like for all sorts of reasons, we're going to vote for Donald Trump. And then afterward decided, and, and you know what, actually it, it's fine. It's fine. If you've been bad, if you, if you've been, you know, bad in private and, and most of what Trump has done is a direct affront to the values of, of, you know, of, of Christianity, frankly, uh, among other faiths, uh, you know, doesn't what what he's done in the past is it doesn't matter. He's going to be fine as president, um, and so you essentially retroactively decide you you know you've, they've, they've, there's a big mind change that happens there, uh, and that's that's what happened with that with that voting block. So it's a little bit related to what we're you know it's it's a little bit um, it's a little bit of a you know of a of a digression from the broader discussion of of how you know Republicans, good, bad, and otherwise, have enabled Donald Trump. But it's a really good illustration of that effect that voters. And and it's and is I mean there's a longer subject there's a longer discussion here that I won't get into but it's a a, a good illustration of how con- attempting to convince a voter uh, you know ra- you know in a kind of rational or cognitive way that a candidate is an affront to their to their value system if they haven't already decided that that's true they are going to be able to justify what that they're going to be able to justify voting for that candidate however they choose to. Uh, and we've seen when and Donald Trump's Donald Trump's exa- uh, election was the best example of that segment after segment that should have been appalled by the guy voted for him. Yeah, and that brings us sort of the next idea of this, uh, you know, no good Republican in terms of generic Republican. Um, the first is, uh, you know, the Republican Party as it exists now created the environment that led us to Trump, whether it was John McCain's very craven decision to choose Sarah Palin as his running mate. Uh, the lapping at the teat of the tit of the Tea Party to win elections, um, the mass acceptance of birtherism, um, you know, to me, kind of highlighted by John Boehner being unwilling to say that Barack Obama was born in the United States. Uh, the Republican Party did this over, you know, we're just focusing on the last uh, eight years. But if you look at the span over the last, you know, 20, um, the push to demonize opponents to the point of um, not disagreeing just on policy issues, but saying that they're bad people, um, created an environment where there's no gray area. And my, one of the things that's really starting to bother me 
about the uh, so-called never Trumpers, um, which I think we all, you know, as thinking Democrats, centrists like me or other people, I think we all kind of enjoyed this concept of that there are never Trumpers out there. And it was great to sort of band together and hate on Trump with Republicans who ordinarily would never agree with. Um, and I'm sure that none of them voted for Donald Trump. However, they all voted for people who are now currently enabling Donald Trump, the people who are voting 90% of the time with him. So how much of a never Trumper are you if you have created an environment in which Donald Trump can be elected, if not succeed? Yeah. And if your party isn't giving you, if the defense is, well, you know, there isn't a primary option for a Republican that is opposing Donald Trump. Uh, that's not an excuse. That's an even bigger problem. Yep. What are you doing in that? What are you doing in a party that doesn't give you an option to oppose Donald Trump? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about the people like, I mean, hell, let's take um, any number. Uh, Charlie Sykes, right? He's the guy in Wisconsin who used to have the talk show. Used to have the radio show. That's the one. Came out as a hard never Trumper. Um, pushed very hard in the lead up to the primary, uh, which Cruz did very well in. I don't remember if he won or Trump won, but it was you know surprising turnout, whatever it was. And then um, Paul Ryan faced a primary challenge by a Sarah Palin supporter. Do you think Charlie Sykes voted for Paul Ryan if he lives in his district? I don't know, but it's an, I would assume that he did vote for Paul Ryan and voted not for Trump. And yet, as we've now discussed several times, Paul Ryan is enabler in chief right now. So what exactly does your never Trump credentials get you if you've done absolutely nothing to change the environment in which Donald Trump is succeeding? Yeah, and it's a, it's, it is, it would be a, a very difficult spot. Um, and, and, and I mean, as Democrats, we have, we haven't encountered anything this, this broke, I think in, in our, at least not in our recent history. Um, it would be a hell of a thing where, you know, you have a, you know, a lifelong set of values that you have used as a sort of guidepost on, you know, to decide who you're going to vote for. Uh, and then eventually you get to a spot where that part where your party, the party that is meant to champion those values is so far estranged from them that your only option, your only viable option is to vote for a candidate from a different party that the values of which you may not, to what you may not necessarily subscribe to. Uh, that's a really difficult spot. So I have a, I have a degree of sympathy, I actually have a fairly high degree of sympathy for Republican voters who are now in a position where their only option is either to ignore the franchise and not vote, which you should not do, uh, as, a, as a matter of general principle, although I can't compel someone and I wouldn't try to compel someone to vote for someone they didn't think was, the, the, you know, to, ca to cast a vote in a way that they just felt like it was a total waste um, and were, was somehow in a, somehow abridged their own sense of values. Uh, you know, but their choice is either to step out of the democratic process or to vote for a party with which they have, you know, long-standing grievances. So I have a certain amount of sympathy for Republican voters in that in that situation. At the same time, uh, you know, this is the state of your party right now, and someday Donald Trump will be gone. But the part, but the party that produced him, all of these conditions will still be there. Right. This is, I mean, Donald Trump's departure, and this is, I think, the point that I would make. Both for Democrats and Republicans, Trump is not the cause of all this stuff. He is just the absolute symptom of it. He is the sort of, I mean, the you know, the avatar of what has gone wrong with that particular, with with the present strain of Republican conservatism, uh, and and his departure will remove a very powerful force from that, but will not will remove a very powerful agent of that. Um, but it's not going to do away with the conditions that led to his, led to his rise in the first place. Um, so Republicans, if you're waiting for this, not, if you I like Democrats too, for in a different context, but you know, for Republicans, if you're waiting for this nightmare to end, so you can just go back to voting for nice Republicans, it's not going to.
this, I mean, every, you know, all of those nice Republicans led to this. And, you know, right now the ones that will follow, we're just going to breed another one of these guys. Yeah. You know, uh, Bill Crystal is one of the ones that I like taking the most pot shots at because he's Bill Crystal and he's never been right about anything in his entire life. Um, starting with being Dan Quayle's chief of staff. Um, he was one of the ones pushing very hard for a third party challenger to Donald Trump. First, it was this idea of David French, a columnist and a military veteran uh, from National Review. Uh, he didn't want to do it. Um, so they ended up with Evan McMullen, um, a Republican staffer on the Hill, former CIA operative um, from Utah. He's Mormon. Um, all well and good. He, he picked, uh, I can't remember what the woman's name was, his running mate. She's a Republican. Mindy Finn, I think, right? Yeah, from um, uh, they did surprisingly well in Utah, of all places, because a lot of Mormon voters, as opposed to evangelical voters, looked at Donald Trump and couldn't imagine pulling the lever for him. Um, but how many of those same Mormon voters then voted for Orrin Hatch, who, as chairman of the finance committee, is in charge of writing this tax code that everybody is so enamored with? So all these never-Trumpers, and um, again, I'm pointing fingers at Bill Crystal here, uh, because he actually went out and found somebody to run. Um, you got to find a lot more people to run. If you're really going to be a never Trumper and you're going to put your foot down, you need to, at this point, start a new party or ensure that Donald Trump and all of his and all of his enablers are kicked out of your party. Those are your options. And sometimes parties have to purge like this. This, this is something that happens. Democratic Party did it in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was a decision that we can no longer run people like Jimmy Carter Walter Mon and Walter Mondale. Um, the Democratic Party, in some sense, is going through it again now with no clear conclusion on where things are going to end up. Which but, is usually how we as a party do things. Yeah. But, you know, not to, well, actually to belabor this never Trumper thing um, a little bit more, you know, it, it's, you can't do a half a thing. You got to do a whole thing. And as much as, you know, I enjoy reading Jennifer Rubin and Brett Stevens and uh, some of these, and some of the guys from commentary, as much as I enjoy reading their stuff these days. You're, you are, you are going, you are doing nothing to hear. Yeah. You're doing nothing to change the, the, the situation. You're, you're actually no better than the quote unquote resistance. So here is the, if an important bit of context for our listeners, uh, one of you and you know who you are. Thank you. Uh, recently, I think characterized this podcast as being like listening to, uh, like listening to a conversation in a bar. Uh, and a good conversation, like, you know, but there, and there is a certain degree of bellicosity and, uh, you know, and the sort of usual, like we, you know, that's, that's kind of the feel that we're, that we're sort of going for here a little bit. Um, at some point this will go from being like a good natured and I hope, re hope reasonably funny or knowledgeable conversation between two buddies in a bar that you all can be part of, uh, and will turn into a straight bar fight between Ellie and me over who, over who is worth a damn in the op-ed section of the New York times. <laughs> We're not going to have that bar fight right now, but just be aware it's coming. <laughs> And be aware that we're not talking about large groups of op-ed columnists. No, no. <laughs> We've like, both agreed to dismiss the vast majority of them as useless human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a, there's a limited number that we're, there's a limited number, but, but there's, you know, this, this, but this is going to go from being a bar conversation to being a bar fight at some point over like, you know, probably Ruben and Stevens and maybe Paul Krugman on my, anyway, we'll get to that. So sooner or later we'll have that prize fight um, and it will be edifying for everyone. Uh, but, but speaking of prize fights, speaking of um, prize fights, yeah. The other thing uh, that that everybody is talking about this week, uh, uh, apart from John McCain's speech, um, which you know M Mark Salter should you know be given great accolades for a very very well written speech, and John McCain for delivering it well, and the opportunity was there, and 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, true defense of the American order and the American way of life. Um, President George W. Bush gave a speech yesterday, uh, which is, you know, was everybody was a Twitter about on Twitter. It's such a stupid sentence, but um, people were all very excited about it. And today, uh, Frank Brunei wrote a column um, in an interview at lunch or something that he had with um, Bush's two daughters. Um, and hence the George W. Bush rehab campaign presses on. It began with his painting. It's continued with his bike riding and, and uh, dogs and the ice bucket challenge and all this. And I know that Frank has some opinions on this. <laughs> so this is just, you know, this is just part of our, we wanted to group this in with our reminder to be on the alert for, uh, for uh, alt, about alt-centrism. This is that urge to find the good Republican, which includes rehabilitating people like George W. Bush uh, and, you know, and doing soft focus pieces on his family and, you know, and just kind of trying to trying to trying to reveal something about him that goes beyond the legacy of his administration as and, and him as a, I guess, to a lesser extent as a candidate uh, is part of, a, I think, an understandable urge uh, to humanize uh, our political opponents after they're out of office, uh, to there may be something even admirable about the desire to recognize that these are these are people with, who are complex. Uh, you know they have you know they have multiple um, they have you know they have they have uh, um, their their motives are multiply determined, and you know just because someone may have been may have done things in office that were bad doesn't necessarily make them a bad person. We want to be able to we want to think of ourselves as being the sort of people who are capable of recognizing the uh, value and humanity of even our, of even our greatest political opponents, that urge is strengthened when uh, there's a sense that our, that our current political opponent, Donald Trump is so egregious uh, and so dangerous that anyone who is willing to oppose him clearly must have something going for them. A little bit of an enemy of my enemy is, is my friend effect. Uh, as you know, taking ship has a policy on enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, we remind you, you know, so this is another, this is another, uh, another public service announcement. Uh, the enemy of your enemy is often a psychopath. Uh, please do not, uh, you know, this, I, I understand the desire to humanize uh, W. I think some of the things that he said, that was not, I mean, uh, there some of his remarks, I think were fairly on point. Uh, they were uh, remarkably, uh, it, it was a remarkable display to be lectured on, uh, mora- on, on moral clarity uh, from the man who uh, led up from the man who was responsible for the lead up to and the execution of the Iraq War and for uh, CIA black sites and everything else that happened during the period of his presidency. Um, you know, to say nothing of the response to Hurricane Katrina, and I could go on. This is not the place for a full indictment of George W. Bush. Uh, just because he paints now does not mean he is not the same man who did all those things. Uh, and I think there is a kind of interesting phenomenon. Ellie pointed this out uh, before we actually got into this podcast. I want to give him credit for this because he's right. There's been a there, we're sort of gravitating toward a point where in public discourse we kind of give W a sort of weird pass for the Iraq War almost, um, and and decide that it was Cheney or and Rumsfeld's fault. Right? Like they're the ones that are carrying water. There's been essentially no rehabilitation effort for either of those two men. Uh, not that I think either of them would ever try for it or want it. Oh, there's a Dick Cheney biopic starring Christian Bale coming out, right? In which he looks terrifying. Yeah, um, this is truly the most. This is truly the most frightening thing Christian Bale has been in, and he and this is the worst thing he's done to himself for a role, and that includes The Machinist. 
So, uh, you know, I, Batman, I, Batman is now Dick Cheney. This is some grim shit right here. And the there world has gone up. The really, world has gone topsy turvy. Yeah. There's not really an attempt to, to rehabilitate either of those two guys. And there shouldn't be. And I don't think either of them would necessarily want it if there was, except that it might advance their sort of, you know, end career goals. Uh, but I mean, this, the buck for all of that shit stops with W uh, just because he comes out and says some, he's able to string a few sentences together about moral clarity. Doesn't mean that he's any, doesn't mean that he has a leg to stand on when he does so. Right. And, you know, we don't want to cast aspersion on George W. Bush as a person from our friends who worked for him to a person they all say is a very generous, good, good, good person. Uh, but that doesn't change the effect that the policies that he pushed for or the actions that he took as president uh, had on, well, everything. Um, and that is our PSA on you know, there's, there's a great book that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, it's the Ex-Presidents Club. Um, everybody should, I think anybody listening to this podcast, if you haven't already read it, you should read it. It's Michael Duffy and um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Drew, I think. Um, it basically talks about the ex-presidents and how they all interact with each other and how this has gone on for years and years and how, um, I think it was Truman used Hoover to raise money um, for projects. And um, uh, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, uh, Kennedy had Eisenhower over to, um, basically lecture him to be an adult and grow up and not listen to his advisors unless he can see a beginning, end, and middle and how he should set up his um, um, White House. Um, Clinton's late-night conversations with, of all people, Nixon, as Nixon was trying to rehab himself. Um, <laughs> Which is truly terrific fodder for comic impressionists for, of all time. Yeah, and on and on. I mean, there, there's uh, there's been some written about... Um, well, I'd forgotten about that. That's so <clears throat> Some there's been some written about uh, Barack Obama's um, um, uh, friendship and and seeking out advice from George H W Bush and obviously George H W Bush and Bill Clinton's friendship is you know something that everybody gets all excited about when they go when they used to go off and fundraise and joke around and he's the you know uh, son from another mother or whatever the joke was um, so it's a book worth checking out um, we it, it has our strong strong recommendation it's um, well worth a read. But uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we briefly brushed on earlier about David Brooks and all centrism, um, and we're going to see, I think, a lot of this now that uh, John McCain is unfortunately, I mean, just medically, it seems, entering the final stages of his life, um, we will see a lot of this sort of boosterism of candidates and people um, that look at them and maybe, I mean you're not necessarily wrong to look at people and like their whole, their whole body of work versus pulling out specific things. But at the same time, you don't really need to ignore bad things that people have done or stupid things that people have done. I mean, John McCain for the war hero that he is and as much good as he's done for the people of Arizona or whatever else you want to say, picking Sarah Palin as his vice president has in a very short period of time, demonstratively shown what one pick like that can do to the entire political climate and dare you say the world based on what Donald Trump is doing globally. That's right. And, and I, you know, this, at one point I considered ethering the entire uh, David Brooks column from yesterday. This is October 19th titled the essential John McCain. I'm not going to do it because this is actually basically just warmed over Brooksism. Uh, so We're going to stick to ragging on David Brooks columns beginning to end probably just once a quarter. 
If yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. That's unless he does something truly remarkable, or as occasion requires it, where he comes up with some new version, right? Like if there's something new that's worth getting into. Right. But this is just warmed over. Brooks. Like if he takes somebody else out for a sandwich, you better be fucking sure that we are going to rag on David Brooks. Oh yeah, that's 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 anytime he goes to lunch with anyone. Like with, look, David Brooks' lunch is a launch on warning situation as far as we're concerned. If we find out that son of a bitch has gone for lunch with anyone, we are we're doing a podcast devoted to that immediately. I don't care what's happening. Yeah, we um, made like you made is, a, is a, just a code red situation for this podcast. Yeah, we may just send out like a conference call code so everybody can just join us as we <laughs> just listen to me just 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 scream into the phone. <laughs> uh, listen to Frank have a rage stroke. Uh, who who wouldn't want that? Okay, but I, you know I will say uh, the you know the McCain piece. First of all, to the extent that alt centrism is a faith, uh, and I think it could I think there's an element that it can be looked at it as such. This is a new this in the in in the history of this particular revealed. Religion, religion. This is a new text. Uh, David Brooks writing on the essential John McCain, October 19, is, you know, destined to be one of the great founding texts of alt centrism. I encourage you all to, to read it and appreciate it for what it is. But here's how he deals with McCain, with the limitations, shall we say, of McCain's career. McCain's career, he writes, McCain's career has had its low moments, as all of ours do. A banking scandal, Sarah Palin, but he exemplifies a practical standard of excellence to an extraordinary degree. And then on he goes talking about it. With this, this is a hagiography of McCain. There's going to be more of this kind of stuff, uh, particularly, as Ellie said, given where McCain is in, in, in his life. Uh, but I do love this. McCain's career has had its low moments, as all of ours do. Indeed, whom amongst us has not nominated uh, to be our vice president, uh, someone who would set an example that would eventually threaten the very fund foundations of American democracy itself? I know I certainly have. Yeah. So anyway, that's that, that. If you want to read a founding text of the revealed religion of alt centrism, uh, David Brooks's column from yesterday, October nineteenth. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure you can find some, you know, soundtrack in the background of angels singing or something while you're reading it. It's a it's a model of its kind. It really is. Um, <laughs> you know, we are we are treated to. Uh, let me see here. What have we got? It's uh, how, where have things gone wrong? It must have something to do with the great tide of moral libertarianism from Herbert Marcuse on down. Yep, it's that moral libertarianism that's done fucked us. It'll get you every time. Yeah, McHugh's was a son of a bitch. Yeah, no, exactly. Who did he think he was? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the last thing we want to bring up today, um, again, because we feel that a lot of our listeners are still somehow convinced that Donald Trump is going to resign or be impeached at any given moment. We have come up with, and we've mentioned this before, um, but we have now come up with the full safe solution to get rid of Donald Trump. And it needs to happen in the next 20 days before Luther Strange no longer has his position in the Senate. It's time. It's time for something strange. It is time for something strange. We have decided we are going to lobby the Hill. We are going to do a fly-in of all of our dozens of listeners. We are going to push Luther Strange to co-sponsor a resolution with Angus King of Maine, the MAGA resolution, the Made America Great Again resolution, the Strange King MAGA resolution. We are going to push for this because this needs to happen. And once it is put in, once the president signs it, he will resign within 10 minutes. Having made America great again, this strange King MAGA resolution, it's, it's an abomination before logic and God. Uh, but I mean, on the other hand, it's also probably our best option. Yeah. The strange King MAGA resolution. We've got less than 20 days to make this happen, people. Get on the phones. Make America strange again. 
Yeah. All right. We're going to keep this a little bit short because uh, I feel that if I let Frank keep going on David Brooks, he's going to have a rage stroke. Um, so uh, we would like to thank everybody for listening. Um, please do subscribe and find a friend to subscribe on iTunes. If you have multiple devices from work, please subscribe on all of them. Again, we're um, joking the stats here. We yeah. don't want actually what we don't want are new listeners. We want the same listeners subscribe from multiple accounts. This is what we're going for here. iTunes, if you're listening to this, uh, please ignore everything I just said. Yeah. Or give our listeners a discount code so they can buy more Apple products. Yeah. That'll work. Either works. Yeah. Also, please follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in, I don't know, pediatric. Um and please uh, be sure be sure to check out the Facebook page. I, I suppose maybe we'll just take it down. I don't know. Do people still use Facebook? I don't give a shit. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week for Hans Island in the Kennedy Channel, which lies between the coldest part of Canada and the coldest part of Greenland, uh, which is uh, technically in the possession of Denmark. <clears throat> now, the possession of uh, Hans Island, which is an uninhabited rock, is also is disputed between Denmark and Canada. And they prosecute this territorial dispute in the absolutely most Canadian and Nordic way possible. One country, so let's start with the Danes. Uh, the Danes will send a military detail uh, to this island. They'll land, they'll hoist their flag, uh, they leave some schnapps behind, and they depart. Uh, a few months later, the Canadians send their own military detail, take down the Danish flag, drink the schnapps, hoist the maple leaf, and they leave whiskey for the Danes, who then come back, drink the whiskey, take down the Canadian flag, hoist the Danish flag, and so on and so forth. This has been going on for a long time. Uh, this kind of uh, generous, uh, humorous bonhomie is a uh, reminder that not every international dispute, uh, trivial or great, needs to be escalated and prosecuted through infantile bellowing and witless posturing. Uh, as far as we can tell, no one even tweets about this. Uh, and, you know, it'd be, a, well, it'd be a real shame to bring such a civil tradition to an end. Uh, but I'm afraid this kind of performative sensibility is in bad taste. It's making everyone look bad and it cannot be allowed to continue. It is therefore our avowed intention, nay, dare I say, our sacred honor, to make passage to this particular blasted rock, haul down the loathsome colors of whoever has it now, and depart, leaving behind the flag of the Lone Star State and a case of Shiner. Friends, we take ship now for Hans Island. Take care, everybody. <laughs>